Welcome to the Crossroads Psychology video podcast. I'm Vojko Mihnia signing in from Beijing. In this episode, recorded some time ago, we will talk about positive psychology and its effects on the brain. I'm joined today by Shira Eliza Silton, a therapist and clinical social worker from New York, with over 13 years experience helping patients cope with a large variety of issues from grief to self-esteem. Thank you for accepting the invitation. Uh, it's my pleasure. It's really a pleasure to, to be able to speak with you. It's so exciting to be able to speak uh, internationally here. <laughs> yes. yes. To begin with, I want to ask you, what is your understanding of positive psychology and how do you translate that to your clients? So I would say that I use positive psychology all the time with my patients. I think that, you know, the themes of resilience and grit and in, even in the most dire of circumstances, and I have patients who've experienced very severe trauma, uh, abuse, you know, the, the loss of a parent at a very young age, uh, loss of siblings. I, there, within every person, there is, there is strength and they have... Um, the ability, if they can recognize those strengths and build upon them, then they can really shift their their mindset and the way that they they interact in the world with others. Mm. Um, I have many ex- examples of this with my with my patients, and you know something I would say also. Um, I do this. Uh, Martin Seligman, I, we, as you know, is is a, yes. a, a wonderful. There's a, an exercise that's been tried and true and, and proven, and I've used it uh, very frequently with my patients, and that's to um, either in the morning or at night, um, whenever they can have a few minutes, to think of at least three things that they recognize as positive uh, positives in their lives or three strengths they have or things that they are grateful for. And it's an amazing the power of mm. this in recircuiting their brain to really look at things in a more positive light. And I always just, you know, we always discuss how in so many realms, if we can start, you know, begin to see the glass half full, then we really do attract positive energy to us as well. Um, and so I think patients, it's easy enough for any patient to either jot down three things or to mm-hmm. think of three things in the morning and night. And it actually can really begin their day in a very, a very, with a very different uh, mood. It is a very powerful exercise. So in your practice, I think you focus a lot on building strength. Why do you think people focus so much on their weaknesses as opposed to their strengths? Well, you know, there's, a, I don't know, many people have seen this movie, uh, Pretty Woman, right? And there's yes. a line in that movie where the female protagonist says, the bad stuff is easier to believe. I think that we, that this is something, a principle we use with others. We, you know, we, unfortunately, there's a lot of gossip and rumors always being spread and we are fast to believe the worst in others. Um, it's, it's harder to take time to, to see the best and to give people the benefit of the doubt. I think the same works for ourselves, you know, from very young, a very young age, possibly over almost in utero, I think we're given messages which we internalize. It might be from our parents, you know, a lot of my patients struggle with body image issues Mm. um, that it was really uh, the seeds of which were planted from a very young age, um, either by their parents, by friends who 
who bullied them. They were too small or too big or too freckly or too, you know, and they've taken these in and they've, mm. they've, uh, it's been very much, I know we'll speak about perhaps some more self-esteem later on in the discussion, but it's something that they've internalized. And um, certainly with social media also, I think there are incessant comparisons that people make um, between, Correct. you know, one another. And they might take a glimpse of something they see on, on social media and think, oh, this person has this fabulous life and I have, I'm just, I'm just a, no, a nobody when mm. really that's a snapshot of that person. And that person might have been having quite a difficult day in, in reality. True. So I think there are so many, it's so easy to, to be critical of ourselves. Um, and it takes a discerning eye to really look at, you know, analyze it and unwrap all those layers. So apart from social comparison, how can one build upon his or her strengths to improve their well-being? I think one of the uh, one of the main things we could do is really instill confidence in our our ch already from a young age as children. You know, I think there there was this really uh, wonderful article called "The Anxious Child" in the Atlantic Journal. Have them work to problem solve. Explore with them how they might solve a certain problem. Don't try to solve it for them because really that's not going to help them in the future. They're going to be reliant. They're going to not, they won't they'll lack the confidence to think they can handle mm. struggles on their own later in life. So I think the best thing we can do for our children and adults is to really have conversations with them about what they're passionate about and what they feel that, you know, what their superhero powers are, you True. know, I think and really build on them, build on, you know, what they love doing, even if it's, it might be helping others. So that might be, you know, it might not be um, an athletic skill or a, or, you know, a musical talent, but it might be the, their ability to relate to other people and to empathize with other people. So whatever that is, I think that that's a really good way of building strength and, and resilience. I also think mindset is very important. So what do you think, how can a growth mindset help people who find themselves in a rut, you know, lift themselves up? Of course, it's very important children to learn new things and to take in new things. But how about older people who are struggling? How can a growth mindset help them? You know, I'm thinking about patients who, who I've had at every age and people really that succeed the most in therapy are the people that really have that instinct and motivation, to, that intrinsic mm -hmm. motivation to want to change and want to grow. And so I often with my patients, I'll differentiate between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. You know, there are things that we do because we're told we should be doing them, that we were told by parents or we're told by our, our teachers. But what about though, you know, and that's fine. And we certainly, sometimes we need to have that outside motivation. But you know, take away the grades, take away the uh, social pressures and the expectations for living a certain trajectory and try to really think about what, how could, you know, working on these various goals, personal goals. I, that's why I think it's very important to set personal goals with your patients, personal goals that are catered to them, catered mm -hmm. to what they want in their own lives. And then that's how we build on intrinsic motivation. Okay. So, and also motivational interviewing. Okay. You want this in your life. What would it take to get there? How, what are the steps that we would have to take? And you make it concrete so that they can really visualize it. We don't want to set them up for 
for failure. We want to really, you know, set up measurable steps that they, they imagine that they, that are, you know, achievable. So we don't want to overwhelm them with, you know, mm -hmm. someone else's goals or, or lofty goals that they'll never be able to reach. Those who go about it in a gradual manner end up sustaining that, that mm -hmm. those improvements. So since, since you mentioned goals, you are also a believer. You also recommend journaling to your patients. I also Go believe ahead. that journaling is such a powerful tool. So I'm, yeah. I'm wondering what are some of the benefits of journaling that you have seen in your practice? My patients sometimes joke with me. They, they, I say, oh, you know what I'm going to tell you to do? Because I, it's something I, I mean, I personally use it. And my, I just, I have, I'm such a firm believer. I, in journaling, I use in a few different ways. Um, I think that um, in terms of, um, I always tell patients to date their entries because mm. that measure progress as well. We sort of can see where our mindset was, let's say even a year before or even a month before and how they're growing and how they're evolving in their, in their various ways of thinking about things and the way they're connecting things. But I think um, the, the use of journals themselves, it's very cathartic. Um, just the, the, the actual process of doing it, the outlet is cathartic. But in addition, I mean, I've used journaling in very significant ways with patients who've experienced loss, you know, writing a letter to their departed loved one. Or um, I have a patient who, you know, unfortunately she lost her friend to suicide and she is, um, I'm having her compile, write, po she loves to write poetry and she's actually going to write a book in memory of this friend. Um, and that's really helping her connect to the friend and also work through the grief. But in addition, you know, after a breakup, what would you have wanted to say that you didn't say? It often can prevent people from lashing out at someone they might be angry at because they're writing it down, they're getting it out, but they're not going to say something they later regret or that later reflects badly on them and they won't feel good about it in the end. So it can be in the form of writing a letter. It can be in the form of writing your thoughts. But once that flow, you know, you can get that flow activated um, I, I think it can really work magic uh, and I also sure. think that journaling is visual and it's a yes. record and you can go back to it and you see your own handwriting there and you say like wow that was me writing that but look maybe a few months down the line I changed yes yes I, I took that's why I always say dating is so important because you know, you might have a sense from yourself oh, when you may have written it, you can, if there's certain context to the journal entry, but if you really think, even if it's, you know, people who are struggling so much with relationships and trying to understand what is it that's not working here, and then they, they sort of go back into the, their own patterns. I think journaling helps you really analyze patterns, and through doing that, we really gain a uh, much deeper insight into ourselves and into other people as well. We can journal about other people's patterns as well. Mm. And I, additionally, um, many people repeat cycles that they have in their families, let's say cycles of addiction, cycles of negative behaviors, positive ones as well, but negative behaviors. And if they can track that from the time they're a child to the time they're adult and see how those cycles are continuing or they're able to break those cycles, that, or that they can spot the triggers. Happening. Yes, in the journals, absolutely. So journaling is like a very cognitive activity. But tell me more about your dance, music, and art yeah. therapy. 
absolutely. So I, I personally have a, a deep passion for dancing. I always have uh, since and I was I a little And I see you're in the park right now. Yes, it's about to rain. So I said, you know what, for in the next hour, it's not going to. I'm going to, I have to be in nature for today, at least for a oh, bit. Oh, I love it. I little um a little quiet um and actually it's very quiet right now so that's good but i'm a deep believer in using creative therapies in one's work i taught dancing from a, a pretty young age to, to children but i worked in a, a day treatment program with um for adults with schizophrenia everyone mm -hmm. in the program had schizophrenia and it was a group program and i ran um, there were a number of treatment groups, um, and I ran, you know, symptom management, anger management, but we also had the ability to incorporate creative therapies. And so I ran a newsletter group so that people could, you know, publish their work, their writing, their pictures, um, things that felt compelling for them. I ran an arts and crafts group and a dance group. And what I found was that these otherwise very vulnerable individuals were able to connect with others and also they felt a real sense of pride in their work and and some of them were really very accomplished artists and um and they wrote some very profound poetry and and you know just sort of and some had religious you know um there's some religious underpinnings to their work but it was really so amazing to watch them in action and you know just see them come out of this shell through mm -hmm. their through these these methods, um, but then I, I also did I taught Zumba later on um, in uh, at a clinic for many years. Mm -hmm. um, I ran an HIV support group and I taught. Um, it's very important to stay active. That's something I'm yes. very uh, strong on. Not be uh, really get up and especially when you're struggling with a chronic condition, medical condition. It's very important to you know, make sure that you're living a, an active lifestyle. Um, and these so, methods work both with children and adults, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think what it does is it takes people out of their heads to an extent and allows them to really engage with others and themselves in a different way. But when it comes to a creative art, you see a whole different person come out and, it, and they, they feel good about it. You've worked with so much with people who, who went through so much suffering, you mentioned schizophrenia, AIDS. In your practice, you also deal with grief and emotional suffering. How do you approach such heavy issues? Grief is something that I actually have been dealing with since I was very young. Um, my father was a rabbi, um, and I used to go to the hospital with him from a, a really a very young age to visit patients. And then I was so attracted to this idea because I, I felt like to sit with someone in this very, very emotionally laden and heavy time, it was a very powerful thing, very difficult, but very powerful. And so I, throughout high school and college and until, you know, about 20 years living in New York, I've run hospital programs where I, you know, visit patients because I, I think there is so much, you know, while we think of it as, you know, there, there's something known as a doula for the dying, someone who just takes someone through these stages. And yes. it's very heavy indeed. Um, but it's also, you know, there's some really powerful, um, Im there's very powerful imagery you can use. I've used, you know, there's this um, song in my culture where you sort of, you sing about angels surrounding you from every side and protecting you and um, and just people knowing the value of um, others praying for them. 
Um, and that, that sort of speaks to spirituality as well. Right. Um, so I have a master's in, in uh, religious studies, and so I use certainly incorporated spirituality into my practice. But in terms of helping someone cope with grief, I think that, you know, for all ages, there are different methods. Journaling certainly is one of them, but, you know, making a memory box, putting all the memories you have, it could be a scrapbook or even a locket of hair or, you know, just, it's it's a very powerful tool. Um, Having, so I had a patient who traveled all the way to Austria because that was a dream her mom had had. To, and when okay. her beloved mother passed, this was a way she felt she could kind of live this dream with her, you know, take her with her on this on this journey. You know, so there are just so many different examples of things mm-hmm. that, and certainly just going through the stages of grief, the dabda, right? The, the yeah. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's, you know, on death and dying. Um, you, you, we have that also with respect to breakups. I don't mean to say they're the same thing, but very often, the, the stages of grief that someone goes through after a very significant breakup is also incredibly painful. And True. people have a hard time feeling that their lives will go on. And so I think that just knowing what those stages are and helping them work through them and having some you know, measure of hope that I will feel better one day. It will feel better. Hope and also, I think, self-esteem, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I, 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 it's such an important concept to grasp, especially for teenagers and young adults. Absolutely. Um, self-esteem, I, I think I could probably speak for hours about self-esteem. You know, I think self-esteem is very much tied. I alluded to it a bit before, but very much tied to, you know, the messages we receive when we're younger and the coping mechanisms we have or have not been given to help combat hmm the negative ones and replace them with a different, more, you know, positive and growth oriented, you know, notions. I mean, it's, it's very interesting. You know, I deal a lot with body image and as it relates to self-esteem and even those individuals who have lost a tremendous amount of weight and they feel, and they objectively look different, they still feel like that Hmm. chubby kid. They still feel, even after the gastric bypass surgeries, many of them still struggle. Um, and they always will feel like that person that was bullied and made fun of. So it really is, you know, as much as we can do external things to try to make people feel better about themselves, there's really so much of the work does have to be done internally. And, you know, social media, I just want to mention again, I'm just seeing with my patients, just adds another fuel to the fire. Uh, it fuels the fire. Um, so I think what's very important in terms of self-esteem. You know, actually, I was watching the other day the Mr. Rogers film. I don't know if you've seen it with Tom Hanks. No, I haven't. It's um, so something that he mentioned, and I, I just am thinking to bring it up, is that it's so important for kids to really feel like there's only one of them. They're unique in their own right. And I keep mentioning kids. I work with mostly adults, actually, but I think it starts when you're younger. And you can also tell an adult this. Um, and hmm. actually in the movie, it is an adult who tries to, well, I'll, I'll explain what I do with adults. But, um, you know, I think for people to know that they are valuable just as they are, not if they change, not if they do this and not if they, they do that. Certainly they can have their own personal goals for themselves, but already just as they are, they're a valuable person. They, they, are, they were created, you know, uniquely and there's a reason they're in this world and um, they, we have to work towards recognizing what special gifts, you know, 
they have to contribute. I think for an adult really struggling with self-esteem, sometimes I have them speak to that inner child and have them speak to, you know, what would they have needed to hear when they were younger? Um, I'm working with someone now who lost his father from a very young age and had a Hmm. very tough mother who needed to be tough. And, you know, he never got that nurturing and love. What would he needed to have heard in those moments to, to be a less angry person today? So that's true, true. And to that, we add these uncertain times we live in right now. And I think being able to deal with everyday stress is so crucial. Can you tell us some, some methods you use to help clients deal with, with, with stress and, you know, stress management? Absolutely. Um, I, and do you mean particularly in the quarantine period or in the... the period? I, think, I think the quarantine period would be very, very relevant today. I personally believe that creating a structure to your day, even if, it's, <laughs> even if it involves, I wake up at this time, I eat breakfast, I pray or I you know, do a mindfulness activity or I, um, I call this particular friend that, that's uplift, you know, an uplifting friend uh, at this time. I, I have a snack at this time. It could be things that seem silly, but you need to have a, set a certain structure to every day. Because I think people get really down and depressed when, first of all, they stay inside too much. I say also, if you can venture out, you know, yes. cautiously, obviously wearing a mask, social, social distancing, whatever you need to do. I have my mask right here. Then, but just get out, breathe new air. Um, even if it's a walk around the block, it's not a nice day. Stay under, you know, buildings, but just, just get, breathe in some new air. Get out of bed. Get to rest. Don't stay in that bed. I yes, think have, have a work, routine. Absolutely. And the worst enemy, I always say, I, you know, even with personal friends, when they're feeling very down, I say, okay, let's do this together. You're going to get up out of bed, get dressed, take a shower. Let's just walk together. Even if we're not walking together, I'll be on the phone with them and we'll just get them up and out. Um, and once you start your body moving and you set, as we said, a routine to the day, you feel more fulfilled and you feel that it was a more productive day. You're a little bit more tired when it comes to sleeping. People are really struggling with sleep right mm. now. Um, sleep patterns have str- just gone all yes, over the place fire. these days. People are sleeping way too late and then they, they're overthinking and they're ruminating and they're not able to sleep. So anything you can do to make your day feel fulfilling and productive for you, I, I, that's what I would say. I think also, you know, what I say is don't watch too much news. Um, I think some people are, you know, that's what they're doing all day long. And it's very negative. It, it's not, you know, what's happening in the world right now. It's, it's, it's very stressful. And they don't even realize how it's impacting them, how toxic that can be. So, of course, they can be informed, but, but limit it. You don't need to do it all day long. That's Correct. So when I was in quarantine, when I came back to China in February from my home country, I had a very, very like strict routine, wake up in the morning, air the house, look at the mountains. We live in the north of Beijing and we can see the mountains on a clear day. And since everything was stopped, the mountains were clear. And I told myself once a day, I read on the news and that's it. You you need to be informed, but you need to be informed about every single minute of what's going on. Hmm. And they don't even realize consciously how it's affecting them, but then it comes out. I Actually, I'll, I'll just share that my four and a half year old son, 
he was he's been having nightmares about ambulances and about there I mean he's, he's so little and and you know you you don't really know it you don't know exactly what they're absorbing but they're absorbing a lot more than we think you mentioned that your father is a rabbi so basically you're trilingual you speak uh, English obviously Spanish Hebrew which I think yes. gives you an advantage in understanding your patients from a cultural point of view Absolutely, so what yes. what role has this played in your career as a therapist and clinical social worker because you've done so much work outside of clinical practice. Right. So yes, I mean, I, I would say that the number one thing I would advise is for you to learn another a foreign language. Um, particularly in New York, Spanish really comes in handy. Um, I've used Hebrew a bit less here, although I've certainly had several patients who speak Hebrew. I think there's nothing like speaking, literally speaking someone else's language to truly connect deeply and profoundly with them. And that is why I, I forced, I mean, I had a little, I had some background in schooling in Spanish, not, not much, but, but some. And I also spent um, a month on a social service mission in Argentina many years ago. There you go. So wow. That helped a bit, but it, you know, it was really me forcing myself to communicate because I really wanted to, to connect with, with these patients. And I just, you know, a lot of people are so afraid of making mistakes and, oh, I'm going to sound so stupid and they're going to think I, you know, they're not going to even want to hear what I have to say. And I said, no, I, I had a very different way of looking at it. I said, mm. I really want to know what they're saying. I really want to understand them. I don't want to have to use a translation service because sometimes they miss the nuances or idioms or sure. expressions. I really want to connect. So I said, even if I make a lot of mistakes, and certainly I can tell you very funny stories about mistakes I've made, I just, I want to get there. And they were my best teachers, my patients. And then it just really, it, it flowed. And, and it, it's, thank God, it, it's, it's much more second nature. Sometimes I even think in another language, but you can do that. It's not so easy as an adult to learn a new language, but if you force yourself to just try to lose the, the sense of embarrassment or shame if it's possible. And I also think it's important for your clients to be able to express themselves in, in maybe what they call a mother tongue or the tongue yes. they speak at home. Yeah. It's very, very, I, I very think, powerful. You know, if you think about the extra energy it takes to try to speak in another language, especially when you're, you're using emotional language, language. emotional words and you're crying and you're you're crying out and it's you know if you have to add that extra each time if you have to try to think of how to say that in another language it, it can't flow as easily and it's not as it's certainly not as natural um, mm. and I want them to be as natural of a you know be able to express themselves as naturally as possible I think it's hard enough to express oneself so. true true you also mentioned spirituality it seems that people these days are becoming more and more aware of the benefits of mindfulness and spirituality. In your opinion, what is the importance of mindfulness and spirituality? I, I really think, you know, particularly in this very fast-paced frenetic world that we're in, um, where we're getting images, you know, we're being bombarded with images every two minutes where um, there's much less delayed gratification. We're just used to instant gratification, instant pleasure. It's really important to take some time and pause and really get back to ourselves and ground ourselves and connect in a more profound way with nature, with, 
with what our needs are, with the, what others' needs are. And I think it's really hard to do this unless we do take a break. When, you know, yoga studios, I think, are probably, uh, you know, being, uh, I know they're, they're offering, a lot of my patients are doing um, yoga Zooms right now mm-hmm. because they just need to, especially amidst this unpredictable time, um, people need to, to ground themselves and, and to connect in a, in a very, um, you know, meaningful way um, with their bodies, with their minds. I totally yeah. agree that it has to be intentional. Absolutely. And Mindful I, eating. Yes. yes. As well. And I also believe that it doesn't have to take like half a day of meditation. No, yes. It can I, also I, be gonna, a 10 minute, 15 minute, two minutes looking inwards. I actually think, I personally think it's more effective if it's not for too long. I think it's, you know, it's not practical to sustain that every day. We know that the most beneficial changes are made gradually. And I think if we force ourselves into a mindfulness, I mean, of course, they're mindfulness retreats and they're meditation retreats, but I think that the the goal is to practice it enough so that you can implement it at least a little bit every day or, you know, even just, let's just say I, I mentioned mindful eating you know, people really, you know, enjoying the texture of their food, not just scarfing it down, mm. but really taking time to think about not how many calories does this have, but actually the, the joy of, of eating and the joy of, of every aspect of it. And, True. you know, the gratitude that we have for, for what we were, what we're given. Um, so that's just one, one aspect of mindfulness, but certainly spirituality in general is a very important component in my life. Um, I've prayed with patients. I've prayed for patients. I think, mm. you know, it might be selfish on my part in a way because I want to feel like I have an active tool that I can help them. I think sometimes we can certainly support them emotionally, but, you know, we can only do so much. And there is this higher power out there that, you know, I'd like to elicit also, mm. it does, it, regardless, irrespective of religion, I don't, you know, you know, religionless, but just the, the idea that, um, you know, I think it, it gives people some solace to think that there's a higher order to things sometimes. True, true. And as a Zumba instructor, how do you promote wellness through physical exercise? Well, I, I absolutely believe in endorphins um, that you yeah. you can you absolutely can elevate your mood when you um, they say after like 20 minutes of a really uh, rigorous, let's say, run or a dance class, people can really lose themselves in if you can lose yourself in an activity, you can really boost your mood and, and your level of happiness. Um, so Zumba is something that is what I love about it is that it, the music is, is so uplifting. You, you become one with the music. It's a group activity, yes. so it, it offers a potential for socialization. It offers the potential for um, networking for people. Um, but it also, you know, when you're, in, you're doing this in a group, you feel like you're part of something as well. So it's like a boost that there's an energy from the group. Absolutely. There's this energy that you just, you just can feel vibrate through your body Mm. when you're, when you're doing it. Yeah. As you know, I'm a psychology teacher at an international school here in Beijing. What advice do you have for young people who think of going into psychology? How can psychology help them in, in their future careers, not necessarily becoming a psychology teacher or a psychologist. 
Absolutely. So it happens to be, um, I've spoken at many um, colleges and universities. I work at one now, but um, my twin, identical twin sister is a psychology professor. So I um, have had the opportunity to speak to her students and, and in other schools. And something that I'll say, whether or not you go into psychology, the opportunity, you know, our, our, our patients give us a golden key into their minds, you know, their souls, their hearts. They allow us to um, really uh, delve deeply in, into the, really the innermost uh, recesses of their hearts. I think when you um, study psychology, you can gain a lot of insight into yourself, but also just relating to other people. Let's say even whether you go into business, whether you go mm. into marketing. I, I know a lawyer who he's exceptionally brilliant, but he had difficulty relate, you know, with his um, interrelationships. So, you know, he was given some coaching in that way. So really it, it, pervades every single field if we can understand people and even if you're in a back office somewhere and you don't interact that much with people we know that you need to have you know some kind of outlet in order to live a, a more full life so um, I think that really it, it, it can only help to, to learn the way the human mind feels thinks operates and um, I would say that you know, as, as heavy as it can be hearing emotional cases, there are many moments where I will say, I, I say, wow, this was a heavy day, but I feel like I was at the right place at the right mm. time. Um, I, and I feel like I, I'm, I'm glad I'm doing what I'm doing, you yeah. know? So yes, it does it pay the most? No, does it, you know, but there, the sense of fulfillment and gratification, if you can reach somebody um, and they teach us as well, that their it's patients immense, teach us yes. as well. Yes, it's a yes. it's a really reciprocal um, process. So that's what I would I would say. Lastly, before we end this awesome interview, yes, I would like to ask you what's one positive psychology book that you recommend to myself, sure. to my students, to the viewers, to the yes. listeners, because I want everyone to focus more on the positive side of life. So, what book yeah. would you recommend? So there, I mean, Martin Seligman, any book by, I mean, Martin Seligman is, is wonderful. He wrote Authentic Happiness and Learned Optimism, where we really just, you know, he describes how we can really, you know, we have the power to think more positively um, and to yeah. bring the positive towards us. One of my favorite books, okay. though, is called um, Flow by Mahali Csikszentmihalyi. Um, I hope I pronounced that yes. correctly, but it's he describes this reverie that, you know, if we can enter into this state where we lose track of time and lose track of, you know, you sort of, if you can imagine a child jumping in and out of puddles in the rain, you know, where they just could literally do that for hours, you know, it seems so, you know, mindless to us. I mean, how could that be enjoyable? Mm. But a child, see, you know, and for us as adults, that might be, Dancing. I mean, for me, it's that's my flow. I think everyone has something where they lose themselves in that, and they say that that is um, something that can really um, optimize happiness. Because we, if we're too much in our heads, sometimes we really we can ruminate and and just become very negative. And I think when we can do something that really we truly derive pleasure from, so that's why I love that book. And flow is like an amazing concept and. Once we are aware of yeah. where we can find it, we can reach that very, very sweet yeah. spot. 
Absolutely, yeah. Thank you so much for your time and your valuable insights and our skip in time from New York to Beijing, from the park to back home. I know you're a very busy person. And there's a 12-hour time difference between uh, New York and Beijing. I'm going to get ready for bed now, and I'm sure you're going to get ready to start the day. Yes. (laughs) I'm going to make sure I, I, before the rain, I try to get a walk. You know, I think that's important. So I'll try to do that. Thank you so much once again for everything that you have shared with us. Absolutely. So such a pleasure to to speak with you and um, wonderful um, inquiries and Best of luck with with everything, with all your endeavors. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.